Good morning. Would you like an update on the climate crisis? Of course you wouldn't. Who would? Let's face it, it's rarely good. And the destruction of the planet, to be brutally frank, not really breaking news. I think one of the fundamental challenges here is that climate is the story of our lifetimes, but it is very rarely the story of today. There are always more pressing needs, more pressing issues that had to take greater bandwidth in the, in the media cycle. The truth is that climate will affect each of us deeply in the remainder of our lives and it will affect not just us but our children, our grandchildren and many generations since. Climate scientist Peter Thorne from Maynooth University on the News at One. And this because of a report from the World Meteorological Organisation to say hooray! We're record breakers. Well, maybe less of the hooray because needless to say, this is not in a good way. A rise in greenhouse gas concentrations, sea levels, ocean heat and ocean acidification, all considered key climate change indicators. Here's Dr Tara Shine, broadcaster and climate activist with Philip on Late Debate. You could, summarising this report for us, choose to scare the hell out of us or you could tell us what's in it and reassure us that it's not too late to act. Which are you more inclined to do right now? I don't know, honestly. Um, I watched the headlines of the nine o'clock news to this and my 11-year-old watched it with me and he had a panic watching it. Line glitch, but she just said panic attack and I just thought my god like that's a totally rational reaction to the news well at 11 years of age he is quite likely to still be around by 2100 mm-hmm. when uh, you know it will be a very very changed Ireland that we are going to live in there's no point in continuing this nonsense of believing that we're not going to be impacted here it is going to hit here quite starkly isn't it yeah, and I mean, we have evidence upon evidence upon evidence. So we've already warmed the earth to 1.1 degrees Celsius above what it was before when we started burning coal. The last seven years have been the warmest on record. And we now have more and more science that can directly the extreme weather events that we're experiencing, whether it's the current floods and heat wave in India or the floods in, in Germany last year. We now know that because of climate change and therefore it's because of us and how we live and how we operate. But the, the key thing is let's talk about the solutions. Luckily, what it tells us as well is that there's still room to turn this thing around and to, for me to be able to say to my son, it's okay, we've got this. The grown-ups have got this. The hope. And we will get to the hope, for there is hope. But first, let's get the detail. Here's Environment correspondent George Lee on the News at One. What kind of reaction is it getting? Uh, From the World Meteorological Organisation and the United Nations, they say, well, they're pulling their hair out, waiting for governments to do the right thing. People will remember that the last time there was an IPCC report into governmental panel on climate change, uh, Antonio Guterres, UN General Secretary, said governments were lying and big businesses lying about what they're doing, that this is so important, they really need to get get cracking. And what they're saying today is, look, this report is even, is telling us there's no let up. We have to attack the low-hanging 
grassroots. They want a big focus on renewable energy. They're saying that they believe that renewable energy technology should be a public good, that it should be spread around the world, that there shouldn't be delays in implementing it. We need to move really, really fast. They're saying that the average length of a, of a uh, renewable energy uh, project in Europe, it takes eight years from start to finish through the planning and everything else, ten years in the States. This is ridiculous. The world is burning. Get on with it. That's the kind of stuff that they're saying. They're worried too about the whole issue in terms of food security, temperatures in Africa, drought in the Horn of Africa around Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya. Really, really worried about that. Really, really worried about heat and drought in around India, Pakistan. Huge concerns. They're looking at the impact and human losses uh, of all of these extreme weather events, some of which we've suffered ourselves. Storm Arwen, Storm Barra, droughts last year, all of that kind of thing. They're saying $75 billion was the loss from Storm Ida in the United States. 20 billion in, this, in, in Germany from the storms last year and the rain, 17 billion in China because of rain and flooding as well. So we have to do something about this. That's the kind of and also on the news at one, this bleak outlook from Michael Dunford, regional director with the World Food Programme for Eastern Africa. In Eastern Africa, and particularly in the Horn, as indicated, we're facing the worst drought in 40 years. It's estimated that. It's never been drier across the three countries, Somalia, Kenya and Ethiopia, during that time. And as indicated, the effects of climate change are being seen on the face of children and young mothers who simply do not have enough food to feed themselves with at the moment. And given many of these countries' dependence on importation of grain and fertiliser from Ukraine, Dunford feared that tens of millions of people would be facing massive food insecurity, malnutrition and even starvation. And planning what might happen in this context is difficult. To some extent you're chasing, in economic terms here, a moving target. Unfortunately, the number of people who are hungry across the region, acutely hungry, has increased by almost 30 million in the last 12 months. And that's that culmination of conflicts, climate change, COVID, and now costs. Ironically, we have the opposite impact in South Sudan. We've had three years of the worst flooding they've ever seen. People are being displaced from their homes, and we're now seeing climate conflict, where populations are coming into conflict because of the displacement. So the situation across the region has never been as bad as this. And uh, we're doing everything we can as the World Food Programme to try and address these needs. But as you say, we're chasing a moving target. And it's a very difficult situation today. From the News at One. And on Drive Time, Sarah spoke to Laura Patterson from the World Meteorological Association. So your report then, is, it also highlights how massive storms and flooding events and heat waves and droughts, how last year these all took a really serious toll on, on human lives. What are those impacts? First of all, you know, Canada, um, USA had um, extreme an extreme heat wave where um, I think over over six or seven hundred deaths were recorded in British Columbia and Alberta alone. In Canada, there was also a severe heat wave in the Mediterranean, which caused a lot of wildfires and affected. You know, we'll remember it being on the news. It affected many mm. communities there. We also saw um, over four hundred deaths from um, Typhoon Infa in Henan province in China. Um, 
um, about 700 deaths from flooding in India and Pakistan. And it's not just the the human sort of lives lost, but also we saw um, billions, you know, of billions of dollars of damage done by these storms. You know, that that storm in China seeing 17 billion dollars in damage, um, the flooding in Germany causing 20 billion dollars, and the most expensive one of last year was um, tropical cyclone Ida affecting the U.S. causing 75 billion dollars worth of damage. So it's, you know, it affects our economies, it affects, it affects even our food production. You know, that drought in Canada was seen to cause a 35 to 40% reduction in wheat pr- production. So it really does have a cascading impact on many aspects of our lives. Now, at this point, you might well have your head in your hands, despair of a Saturday morning, for this is grim stuff. Something Sarah acknowledged. What needs to happen? You know, because I think people get so depressed listening and, and feel so helpless, you know, listening to these reports of things just getting worse all the time. What needs to happen? We need our, our governments to act. You know, I, I, I do agree that, yes, individuals can do more. You know, we can make choices about how we travel. We can make choices about what we eat. But, you know, really, it, it's going to need governments to really step up to this challenge. Um, Antonio Guterres today, um, our you know, UN Secretary General, called for a real radical shift in how we look at renewable energies and fossil fuels. You know, our, he said globally, um, governments are subsidizing fossil fuels three times as much as what they're subsidizing renewable energies at the moment. And this just doesn't make sense. So um, I think whilst we all can individually act, we can also act at the voting the voting booths as well mm. and, um, and call on our leaders to really take action. And one action that might help is something called rewilding. On the Clare Byrne Show, this opening from Park Fogarty from the Irish Wildlife Trust. So really what we want to do, uh, what we want to get out of rewilding is uh, the restoration of our natural ecosystems. Now, this is important because in Ireland, uh, we don't have any natural ecosystems. We've basically destroyed them all. And uh, this matters because our land at the moment... Say that again. We've destroyed them all. Yeah, pretty much, yes. We we our natural our native forests are about one percent of our land. We don't have any healthy bogs. Uh, our seas have basically been destroyed and overfished from bottom trawling. Uh, so the human pressure in Ireland is more or less one hundred percent. And rewilding uh, is a chance to reverse that damage. Well, that's a bit scary. So we really need some rewilding then. And someone knee deep in it is Randall Plunkett, Baron of Dunsany, County Meath. It was uh, one of the largest farms in the country for uh, the longest period of time. My great relatives uh, were pioneers in, in creating sort of the, the modern uh, agricultural structures that we have today. There was at the one point more than a thousand cattle here at the beginning of the century. So we were very much on the cutting edge of industrial agriculture. But now times have changed. Climate change is the fight of our time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are trying to be on the cutting edge of the next transformation, if you like. Now, he embarked upon this project about 10 years ago, but not everyone at the dinner table shared his vision. I had a very few, quite a few awkward conversations, I'll tell you. Let's just say I got called idiot a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the thing is, is like, this is a new, this at the time was sent quite a new idea. So what exactly was he doing? Uh, when I started, um, I didn't know what would happen. I kind of wanted to see what would happen. And the local farmers told me that the whole place would explode full of ragwort and thistles and the land would be destroyed. And I didn't believe them. Um, 
well, I was wrong. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> blew up full of thistles and, and ragwort. Okay. Um, and ironically, at first I tried to uh, do things by hand, pull ragwort, that sort of thing. But gradually I gave up, and, land, and as time went on, the land stopped. I started seeing ragwort disappearing, and instead wildflowers and, and different kinds of ferns, silverweed, all these kinds of things started appearing. Because what I discovered, Claire, was the default setting is biodiversity. And that's the power of rewilding, because it's not that we have to do so much. We have to give nature time, because the whole power of rewilding is it regenerates itself. Insects have exploded. Uh, we had uh, a massive amounts of different grasses and different flowers and plants that I'd never seen before. We have averaged at least one animal return per year. With these, with these new creatures coming back in, I'm just wondering, is the ecosystem complete yet? So you have, I know you have deer there, don't you? Deer, we've, we've had the return of the otter. We've had woodpeckers for the first time in 100 years. We have uh, red kites. We have buzzards. We have peregrine falcons. We have owls. Now I'm seeing things I'd never seen before. And he acknowledged that this is a long-term project and, yes, something he can well afford to do. People in the locality, however, not all so keen. I read in an interview that you did about a year ago that you have faced some confrontation, to put it mildly, in the local area. There has always been problems. Um, but the thing is with this sort of idea, any changing of, of a paradigm is always going to create a, a knee-jerk reaction. But this is something that's very natural. This is something that we need to celebrate, something that we need to endorse, because this is our culture. This is part of our heritage. And more than that, it's part of our future. And if we don't do anything now, it doesn't matter that there's no money today. There won't be anything tomorrow, because this is a largely agricultural country. We're very dependent on the climate. And one season where there's no rain, most of the farming is going to be destroyed in this country. So we need to plan ahead. And rewilding is one tool that we can use to try and offset that. And there's no point blaming the Chinese or blaming the Russians or blaming the Americans. What do we do in this country is, is what we have to start with, and then the rest will follow. Randall Plunkett with Claire. Any excuse not to mow. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Little Mix has called it quits. Q Arena's celebration of the girl band, and they do not get much better than this. <laughs> Yo, Spice Girls, Baby's Sporty Posh, Scary and Ginger. And as Louise Bruton told Sean, these were women having a lot of fun. Like, it's just pure energy. Like, the whole, like I, I can't even imagine what the songwriting process was for something like that, where so many people's personalities were accommodated and that they, pro- they probably brought so much more to the room than anybody ever mm. could have anticipated. When you can compare, say, the likes of what maybe Boyzone's debut was, which is just a kind of good-looking boys in very oversized shirts that are buttoned down revealing their, their abs. Like, that was, that's that's what they were mm. comparing themselves to. And that's why they took off. I think we were maybe a bit too bored with the kind of the safe format of kind of puppy dog eyes and kind of love songs. And suddenly we had this big kind of ball of energy coming in that was simply about fun. But if all of that's a little too poptastic for your liking, surely not. You might have been more of a moody girl, all cargo pants and piercings. 
All Saints were probably born as the antidote to Spice Girls, where Spice Girls were obvious, Spice Girls were loud. Mm. And even with the that song like Never Ever, it's an unusual construct for a pop song where you're looking at it and listening to it in a different way. You kind of have to pay a bit more attention to it. And that's what All Saints were about. They were far more sullen. Um, they were less obvious to the sequins and glitter of Spice Girls. They mm. wore just kind of beiges and camouflage pants and all that. It was a different thing altogether. Would the comparison with Spice Girls possibly annoy All Saints? Certainly. Like I think... Uh, uh, All Saints were at the NME Music Awards whereas Spice Girls were at the Smash Hits and that's mm. the difference it's glitter versus kind of cool and again in terms of fandom was there an effect there was it was it okay and acceptable and cool to be a fan of uh, All Saints uh, and less cool to be a fan of Spice Girls you know for the music snob if you like Certainly probably for the older generations. I think if you're, if you were a kid in the 90s, it didn't really matter if you loved All Saints or Spice Girls or the two of them at the same time. But I think maybe All Saints were aimed more about the older the older teenagers who were kind of trying to figure out who they were as adults. And of course, there were more adult themes in their music. Mm. And they are considered a bit more of a songwriter's band because Shaznay from All Saints is she, even though Spice Girls did have songwriting credits, Shaznay had what's considered serious songwriting credits. So uh, it's more of kind of serious versus silly. the 90s and in a similar sepia tinged note Ryan hit the road to yes you've guessed it Galway but I remember in our holidays when we used to drive as a family from Dublin to Ballinahown which is out near Rossaville that part of town in Connemara it first of all it took 645 hours to get there then there was you know the occasional car travel sickness not to mention the 400 silk of purple that were being piped through the back and then the occasional car sick stop for it. We're not, not that we're, uh, and throwing the dog in, a small car. These weren't, you know, I mean, <laughs> and it, <laughs> now this isn't Angela's ashes. This is just, I think that we all, you know, a lot of us would have had an experience of this. Unfortunately, road safety uh, was not an issue. I mean, five into two doesn't go. And also no seatbelts in the back seat anyway. So it was just like, good luck with that. It was like, putting five marbles into a jar and shaking it for five hours, throwing smoke and sick, sickness and boredom and nausea, lots of nausea, lots of nausea. And then, but sorry, I got tra- sidetracked there. The point I was trying to make was that you got to see every bit of Ireland. The motorway is great. Zoom, you're there in two hours. I don't, I don't miss the five hours in the coffee jar like the marbles, but I do miss seeing the bit. So that's why when you have the time, it was lovely to be able to divert into, as I say, Athen Rye, because you get to see just a bit more, a bit more reality, a bit, bit more warmth, a bit earthier. I liked it. I would have thought puking at the side of the road was quite enough reality. Thank you very much. But get to Galway, he did. And he spoke to the very reverend Linda Pilo. When you were very little, what did you want to be when you grew up? What did I want to be? Anything but a priest. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> um, I suppose I wanted to teach and I wanted to nurse. And like every little girl, there was all sorts of things I wanted to do. But I had a huge sense of vocation from a very young, How young? from the time I was, I would probably place it about 13 or 14. Right, that is young. Um, what do you do with that when you're so, because it's such a tricky age uh-huh, anyway. Uh-huh. And a vocation is such an enormous, profound Mm-hmm. Um, th- theologically mm-hmm. challenging, existentially mm. perhaps, uh, philosophically. What do you do with all of that? You fight it. Really? Mm-hmm. You fight it. It was overwhelming and um, 
And I, I, I told you yesterday, my nickname was Mouse. I was incredibly shy. If you said hello to me, I would blush. Mm. Um, so how could I possibly be in a pulpit? How could I possibly lead services? How could I possibly uh, be with people? And I fought it for a couple of years. And yet I discerned. There's that great word mulling and discernment in vocation. And I think it's like any vocation. But I remember quite specifically one night saying, OK, God, we'll give it a go. We'll discern further. I'll, you know, speak to people. I'll embrace it. And we'll see, thinking that nothing would come of it. And I felt the most overwhelming peace and joy. And I never looked back. Every door, to some extent, was opened. I was incredibly young. uh, And every time somebody thought, oh, she's too young, she won't get there. uh, She needs to give it time. Every door opened for me. And the more and more uh, I went through those doors, towards uh, ordination, the more happier I became, the more at peace. It was overwhelming. Amazing. And while she didn't quite hear voices, she really was in no doubt as to her path. The word vocation, that's it's it's kind of Latinate word by meaning the calling, isn't it? Mm. But I'd love to know what what does the calling, what does a vocation sound like? There's no big shout. There's no... um, there's no transfiguration almost like like uh, what Jesus faced uh, on the mount. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, it was just a slow, steady um, feeling within me. And it was a constant pull towards doing okay. this. Uh, even though it wasn't, it was not my comfortable place by any manner of means. But as I said, when I embraced it, uh, I, I never looked back in terms of the peace, the joy, uh, the motivation, it was overwhelming. The very Reverend Linda Pilo of St Nicholas Church in Galway with Ryan on Wednesday. And on the same day, more talk of religious life and some callers to Liveline mounting a defence of nuns, particularly in light of the vote on the National Maternity Hospital. Patricia was the opening caller. Yeah, I feel that during the discourse on the National Maternity Hospital, I'd like to strongly object to the way Nuns are being referred to. I don't think any other profession would tolerate the disrespect with which they're being referred to. My grand-aunt was a Bonsecours nun. I feel like I have to speak up for her. She was 14 years old when she joined the convent. She lived a life of indentured domestic servitude. She died in penury. I see her as a Magdalene girl. She came from a devout family of 10 children where she had no choice but to join the order she absolutely sacrificed her life along with many, many others who made our lives ultimately better now by providing free health care, free education. And it, it hurts me to think of her every time the nuns are referred to so disparagingly in the national media. Yeah, and, and even the way we say the nuns, um, I mean, obviously the nuns in, in question that we're talking about down the road in, in St. Vincent's are the religious sisters of charity. But if we spoke about farmers or teachers or comedians or any other profession, the way we speak about the nuns, they would be national outcry. Do you do you understand, though, you know, why there was such a debate around the role of the nuns in this particular case? Yeah, absolutely. But I think you cannot in every profession there will be bad apples and you can't tar a complete profession, especially a profession who was so self-sacrificing for the, for the most part and so 
idealistic. I think it's just such an injustice to speak about nuns the way we're referring to them in the national media. And Breda too felt the nuns were not getting their due. Stop criticising the nuns. They gave them Vincent's hospital. They gave them the grounds. They're not, they're not going to well, leave I think the point, Breda, Breda, How many? Who's going to be alive in 300 years? Breda, I have to say this because we'll be getting lots of calls and if I don't, I think the point there was that they didn't give us the grounds, that they, well, they, they agreed well, to lease the grounds for nuns, a long period for a small sum. Now, I would say to hell with the whole lot of years. Get your ground, get your hospital, suit yourself. We did our best. You didn't appreciate it and I would walk away. The nuns are not to be blamed and there's not very many of them left. As you might imagine, not everyone agreed. Here's Lisa. I'm just appalled at listening to anyone trying to defend the indefensible um, and to minimise the pain and suffering of thousands upon thousands of women, children and men at the hands of nuns and the church. I mean, that cannot be... We can't simply say, oh, this one was nice and that one was nice. In my mind's eye, if a nun, even the one who was decent, shall we say, if she was there and she witnessed the apparent cruelty, well, then she's complicit in the whole thing because she she watched it and did nothing. But did they have power, though, those nuns, Lisa? Of course they had. Uh, They did the power to open them. And I do understand that... They were part of an order and it was, you know, a lot of the nuns were young going in themselves. And I understand that. I do, Katie, to a degree. But, there's, you know, one of the ladies was saying they're older now. Well, you know, if they're older now, let's not just start defending them when it comes to money because the monetary gain and all of this for the church is, you know, this is always the time when you'll find people speaking up and defending them. You know, the older ones, why are they not coming out and saying, Sorry, sorry I was there to witness your baby being pulled from your arms and being sold to the highest bidder. Sorry that you were left in labour for 36 hours with no pain relief. Sorry that your child was put into a defect ward because it had a hair lip. Stuff like that. I mean, they're older now, so have the honesty to come forward and say, sorry, don't just come on out talking now because there's money involved. And that's what sickens me, Katie. Now, some callers phoned in to praise the religious orders for the education they had received. Others told Katie of the bullying and abuse they had endured in schools. And Mark phoned in to tell of his experience. He had been born in a Magdalen laundry. The system was set up to to punish the women and girls of Ireland due to a sort of a warped moral view of morality and sexuality that viewed children as only being legitimate out uh, within marriage. Mark, I do think that was society's view. You can't, let, that, that, you can't let, let society, that, that's too simplistic. You know, that, that's too simplistic to let society. No, it's much society. more simplistic to think that it was the nuns. The nuns were no. just acting on behalf, doing the dirty work of the state. So they were, to, to say, to, you know, like, oh God, what's coming to mind now is that they were only following orders. Like, that, that's, that's ridiculous to, 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 to sort of pander that out. Like, you know, that, 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 they, this went on not just for a couple of years, this went on for, de- for generations. The state wasn't in a position or didn't prioritise the care of these people. The care, the word care is is misnomer there. You know, there there was no care. There was no uh, care. The care was just, the reason why the the institutions 
stopped was because they were no longer economically viable. The, the nuns were getting, the orders were getting paid to do, paid on behalf of the state to do this work, to, to and care I think for society children. society began to see it as unacceptable. Society was absolutely accepting of it for a long time. Yes, but it was a, it went right from the from the foundation of the state, the turn of the century, right up until there was 78 to 80 years of this. This was policy, but it was the actively engaged by the religious orders. You know, they, they knew it wasn't like there was a few bad apples. It was an active policy of punishment and penit penitentiary uh, for the women and the girls. And I can't believe that there is this revisionist view now that there's a few bad apples or they were following orders. This was policy. Or, Mark, is it just that you don't want to see another view? I mean, I, everyone I is entitled to their own view. I can take your view, the view, but I can't believe that you're... You're sort of saying there's bad apples in every profession or there's a few. You can't conflate those, this argument with a policy that we're known for 70 years in the state. Mark and Patricia with Katie on Wednesday's Liveline. Back in a bit. Welcome back. With Ray, John Ronson and his podcast Things Fell Apart, which tells stories from the culture wars. How do you define a culture war? Maybe the best definition I read was the battle for dominance over conflicting values. Right. So the first big modern culture, when I say modern, I, I go back to the early 1970s for the genesis of what's happening today. Uh, so the earliest ones were over abortion and over diversity of thought in school textbooks. The ones that are probably raging at their hottest right now are transgender rights and uh, critical race theory. Those are the two big ones and Darcy decided to wade right in at the deep end. Uh, now, talk to me about Nancy. Nancy um, was a transgender woman, and, and you traced her story, uh, you know, and you attached it to the term turf and some of the, 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 the war that's going on around transgender politics at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting story how the word turf came to be. Um, so, yeah, Nancy, trans woman, she would go to this um, women-only festival called Mitchfest um, in Michigan. And she went there one year and had, like, a you know, wonderful time. And there were other trans women there. I don't, I don't think very many, but there were other trans women there. Anyway, the second time she went, a woman went up to her and said, you know, you're not, are, are you a man? You're not welcome here. You have to leave. You have to leave now. And so, so she left. And um, they set up camp the following year, Camp Trans. And there's an argument that, you know, an, an awful lot of the modern transgender movement started at Camp Trans. And at the beginning, it, it was really a place to try and heal rifts between the two communities. And it, and, it, and it worked for a while. There was, you know, meetings of minds and so on. Um, anyway, uh, that, uh, that all, you know, obviously fell apart over the years. And, and the word turf was originally invented about that particular incident. Should somebody like Nancy be allowed into this particular festival? And they tried to find a, a, a term for women who didn't want to allow trans women in, and the term was trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Wasn't wasn't a term of abuse at all, uh, but obviously, like everything else, has become a term of abuse. And you spoke to the woman who coined the phrase. The, uh, yeah, and she's like, oh my God, you know, I wanted this to be a factual term. I didn't want it to be a thing that people like, scream at each other about. But as he said himself at the outset, this is a hot topic, and even discussing it 
can be difficult. I don't know. It's very, very hard for anybody to talk about, for people to talk about transgender issues because um, it's such a minefield and there's an awful lot of people involved who are very ready to argue in bad faith and scream and shout and... Okay, well, and about, the whole thing is just so. It's like, yeah, how how can you have a how how can you have a any kind of civilized conversation or mm, debate mm. when it's that serious? It, 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 it appears to me there are no winners um, from this because uh, if you can't talk openly and ask questions about uh, a marginalized group in society um, and get people familiar with the language, well then. Mm. It remains taboo in a way, you know. And if people, yeah. if people like you, and I can hear it in your voice, are afraid to have open adult discussions, well, that's not good, is, mm. it? is it? Well, it's certainly not going to, certainly not going to bring bring people into the fold. No, uh, it's, it's all it's going to do is is make people stay away. And as an early explorer of what we now called cancel culture, he gave quite a nuanced answer as to how even that phrase has been co-opted by the right and the left. I mean, things are very bad and very extreme. Because uh, you know that the whole cancel culture debate has become just a mess mm. because it just means so many different things to so many different people. It's a, it's a phrase, those two words... Uh, incorporate a vast number of completely different sets of situations. Okay. Uh, How so do you from, understand you know, it? How do you understand it? Well, I, well, for me, it means the disproportionate punishment of private individuals who haven't really done anything wrong. Right. Like if a politician sexually assaults somebody and then you know bleats that they're being cancelled, that's a whole different thing. Of course. Um, Putin <laughs> talked about cancellation as part of his invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so all that stuff is clearly is clearly ridiculous. But then you've but you've also got people on the left who say, "Oh, cancel culture doesn't exist. It's just holding people accountable, and it's always been that way." And there is some truth to that. There's some truth that if you're an agent provocateur columnist, you could be piled in on before the internet existed. Mm. But but of course. The way that the internet goes means that those things have become much more extreme and much more ubiquitous. So there's some gaslighting going on when the left say that it doesn't exist, I'd say. John Ronson with Ray and final word on Twitter and a certain billionaire. I hope that if Elon Musk buys Twitter, it's a disaster and he loses billions and he goes back to what he should be doing, which is creating an exciting utopian future of quiet cars and quiet aeroplanes. That's you told, Elon. Diagnosis, or rather misdiagnosis, was the focus of a book by Dr Jules Montague. It's called The Imaginary Patient, and she talked to Claire about something called excited delirium and the use of stun guns. This is excited delirium, which has popped up a couple of times um, in in Ireland in the last few years. It's more prevalent in the States and, and here in the UK, where I am. And the idea is that it happens to primarily men who encounter law enforcement. So you might have heard it discussed in relation to George Floyd in recent times. And the idea is if you have a loved one that dies during one of these encounters, you'll be told that it had nothing to do with the knee on their neck. It had nothing to do with the stun gun. But instead, there was something innate biological in your loved one that caused it. And that condition is excited delirium. Now, it's unlike any sort of medical condition you've heard about. So it's things like 
the, the law enforcement people will say afterwards, well, the person was inappropriately clothed or they didn't show remorse before their death. Those are the medical criteria. And it turns out this is a diagnosis, so to speak, that's championed by stun gun companies who are often implicated in some of these incidents. Is excited delirium a medical condition? I think advocates of it would say it's a description rather than anything else. Okay. Uh, to me, it's very clear, and there's been lots of inquests that have shown that the deaths, and I speak to uh, a family member of Mikey Powell, whose story I tell in the book, and in the inquest from Mikey, it was clear that it was positional asphyxia. In other words, he had been held face down uh, and he was put in a van on the way to the station. He was also hit with a baton and there was all sorts of very clear forms of restraint that were inappropriate that led to his death. But as I said, the, the prosecution were very keen, for example, or the defence for the police in some cases were very keen to forward this excited delirium as an explanation. And she talked about a similar thinking around the diagnosis of cannabis psychosis. We know that cannabis psychosis, you know, we, we, we get the concerns about that and, and we know that high strength cannabis and, and heavy use of it may be associated with psychosis and by psychosis I mean hallucinations and delusions and those sort of psychiatric symptoms. The problem is who gets that diagnosis of cannabis psychosis and I went back to Hansworth where a lot of the riots were in the early 1980s and I visited police stations and old asylums and prisons and I found out that primarily black men were given this diagnosis of cannabis psychosis. It didn't matter whether they'd taken cannabis or not by the way, in fact white men were using cannabis more frequently and as a result of that diagnosis which was used to explain their anger, even though conditions in Hansworth were terrible at the time, that diagnosis was used to imprison these men and to institutionalise them. And I saw men who still bear the legacy of being put on heavy duty drugs from that time. They have a syndrome called tardive dyskinesia and I saw them walking down the street causes Parkinson's from those drugs. It causes drooling, it causes grimacing and chewing and so on movements, even though the drugs were stopped a long time ago. So cannabis psychosis is not only about some debate about whether it is an inevitable consequence of cannabis, but it's also who it is applied to. Oh, that is very interesting indeed. Dr Jules Montague with Claire. Now, is there no stopping our boxers? Not one, but two gold medals at the World Championships. One for Amy Broadhurst from Dundalk and the other for Lisa O'Rourke from Roscommon. And Amy spoke to Mary on Morning Ireland. But it almost didn't happen. Dublin goes traffic free. We'll be hearing what's going on. After and we'll hear from Amy Broadhurst. Oh, we've got her. Brilliant. We've got her after this. High drama. But there she was, all the way from Istanbul. Well, how are you? Congratulations. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Even just hearing that there, it's madness. <laughs> it's crazy. You're, you're living the dream. <laughs> I am, but it's took a long, a long road to get here. It's been 20 years of my life that that's actually got me here. Like I've had European medals and that before, but all I've wanted was a, a world medal and, and to go and get a world gold um, is just unbelievable. I don't, I don't think it's so, like sunk in yet. I don't think it'll sink in until I'm at home on my own and I'm actually just thinking of what I've just achieved. We had your dad, Tony, on a little while ago. Obviously, he is <laughs> he loves bursting, <laughs> bursting with pride. Amy, he said, and you, you've just said it there, since you were five years old, your focus has mm. been boxing. What is it? What, what is the love? I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Um... I just knew from a little girl that this is what I wanted to do. Even yesterday, before I came out for my fight, I just thought to myself, like, 20 years ago, 
I started boxing and this is what I've been dreaming about from from I was that age. What you've just been through, winning a gold medal, that that's a harder forum than the Olympics. And I know your ambition is uh, to go to the next Olympics and the one after that. So you're you're set fair for it now, aren't you? I am. I've I've put I've put my name up there. I've always had people telling me, oh, like you're one of the best in the world. But it actually took myself to believe it to go and do it. If that makes sense, I've. I've always, I've, I have people around me who have seen just how good I am, but I didn't believe it myself. And then I think over the last three months with sparring with Katie and getting the confidence from her um, and even sparring with Kelly as well it has lifted my confidence a lot. And this is the first, this is actually the first competition I've come into really fully believing in myself that I could win a gold medal. And it's amazing what believing in yourself can do. Dundalk's finest. But what about the other gold medalist, Lisa O'Rourke from Castlereagh? Sports journalist Seamus Duke talked to Des. Well, she's going to be a superstar here in Roscommon anyway, for certain. Uh, what a win. It's just, uh, it was almost incredible every day that she won. Uh, she's gone further and she's gone further and further again. And uh, with the Olympics coming up in a couple of years' time, this is just unbelievable. And to think that uh, maybe that there's going to be two sisters from the one household from a small town in the west of Ireland uh, capable of going to the Olympics. I mean, it's 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 just a fairy tale. Huge congratulations to both gold medalists. Roll on Paris 2024. We are almost at a finish here on Playback, but just a quick nod to yesterday's live line. Lobsters, should we eat them? And if so, how best to send them to their maker? You put the lobster into lukewarm water and bring it up slowly and the lobster goes asleep and is not stressed and then you can finish it off. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sorry, who's that, Brenda? Why pay so much money to put such hardship on some little animal, crustaceous animal, that won't even fill you anyway? That should be a starter. Would well, you like you're, to be put into something well, going up hotter? Well, okay. it would be better than being dropped into something scalding and screaming, yeah. Yeah, but would you still like it? Not particularly, would you? No, that's why no. I'm on the show. Oh, I feel there's an existential riddle in there somewhere. Lifeline from yesterday. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. And this man was all over the place. Please forgive me if I act a little strange